Welcome to the first episode of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. With me are Andrew Brown and Michael Majors. Uh, between the three of us, we have a gold level pro, a gold level pro that is shooting for platinum, and a platinum level pro that is shooting for worlds this year. So, Michael Majors, why are we here? Uh, basically, to give everyone a unique perspective, um, there's not, not really like a dedicated for lack of a better word, hyper-competitive podcast available, and the three of us are basically playing Tournament Magic every week, week in, week out, both covering the East and the West Coast and the Grand Prix Pro Tour and SG Tour circuits. And we do okay for ourselves, you know, like I said, uh, throughout the entirety of next year at least, the three of us are going to be mainstays on the Pro Tour circuit. Michael and I are playing a lot of SCG Tour events, and Andrew Brown is just great. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so last week... Uh, Michael and I were on the East Coast. We live in Roanoke, Virginia. We went to Grand Prix Charlotte, and Andrew was at Grand Prix Los Angeles. Those tournaments were pretty weird. Uh, modern tournaments both happening at the same time on different coasts. Uh, if you look at the Day 2 metagame breakdowns, like they, they look like different tournaments, and they were won by some super weird decks that people probably didn't expect, like Merfolk and Ad Nauseam. And I know, Andrew, you're weird. You played Ad Nauseam. Uh, how did that happen? So I played Ad Nauseam at the tournament. If you look online, the guy's deck list said 62 cards, but it was actually 60. And I registered exactly the same 60. Normally, Ad Nauseam decks are pretty formulaic, and they just run that configuration. But based on the texture of the metagame, I thought that Ad Nauseam would be a good choice because, you know, there's the unbanning. People are trying to fiddle around with Ancestral Vision, trying to do sword stuff. I just thought that I could catch people with their pants down, pretty much. That that would be a reasonable explanation, and that's that's probably why Andreas played the deck, but I also know that you played this deck during the Eldrazi GP, right, in Detroit? Yeah, I did. I thought it was a good choice for the Eldrazi GP just because, you know, people are trying to beat you up with Reality Smashers, and Unlife and Angel's Grace can just buy you so much time to combo off. I definitely agree with that. I One of the few matches I lost when I was playing Blue-White Eldrazi, just like in the multiple tournaments I played it in, w one of them was to Ad Nauseam and the matchup did not feel great. I don't know, it just weirds me out that I feel like just every week or every modern tournament you're just like, I'm going to make up an excuse to play this deck. And <laughs> I, I feel like people just generally do that, you know, because like they modern is this format where you're kind of rewarded for playing what you know. It, you know, some people I think should are just better off being like, I play Ad Nauseam. That is my deck. But I don't know. For you, like two tournaments in a row, man, different excuses. There, we're developing a trend here. Well, there is Temple of Deceit in the deck, so I, I'm pretty much obligated to sleeve that up. But if you if you do look at the metagame, right? If you or if you look at the top eight, you take a picture of the top eight of Grand Prix Los Angeles. It's Tron, great matchup. Uh, the Grixis matchup is fine. Creature Toolbox, it says here, or the company deck, excellent matchup. Affinity. It's a toss-up. Jund, it's a toss-up. I don't know about the new Eldrazi and uh, Merfolk. Not quite sure about that matchup, but most likely another toss-up. So a lot of close matchups, basically. I would imagine that your Bant Eldrazi matchup has to be good if, like, the busted blue-white Eldrazi matchup was already good. Yeah, pretty much they just have to chain Thought Not Seers, which is already a pretty tall task. Yeah, but you're, you're also just one of those decks where you just need to find an ad nauseum sometimes, and then, you know, they just die. Like, you just, you're always drawing life, basically. Yeah, I think it's also another good way to leverage your skill in these situations. You're playing with a lot of cantrips. You get to, you know, like, anticipate what your opponent's going to do. Sometimes they don't exactly know how the, how the deck works. Like, you can go off at instant speed during their, when they're fetching. It's, uh, there's a lot of different angles to attack it. So, when you have that ability to leverage your skill, then 
again. I mean, why, why not? You know the deck, play the deck. Word. So you, you finished X and 4? Yes. I finished X4. I made one mistake that cost me a match. You know, throughout the tournament, two spots I got pretty unlucky, two spots I got exceedingly lucky. So I would assume that X and 3 minus my mistake would be the correct outcome for that tournament for me. Okay, so you were pretty happy with your deck choice. You would run it back. I was happy with my deck choice. I got the two pro points that I needed and, uh, you know, overall good weekend for me. Okay, so uh, two questions. Like, how difficult do you think this deck is to play? Just, you know, for someone who might want to pick it up, uh, having seen it win Grand Prix Charlotte. And how? Where, where are you now for pro points also? Currently I'm at 35, which means if I X and 4 the Pro Tour, I will be Platinum. My spots are all nearly full for GPs, so I'd have to get a 3 and a 3 in a row to get points for X and 5 getting me to Platinum. But I, I feel like I'm in a good spot now, and if I X and 3 the next GP I go to, I'll probably go hard on the next ones. But in terms of like picking up ad nauseum, it's not the easiest thing. There are two distinct versions. There's the versions that play Spoils of the Vault. It's a pretty like math-oriented card. Like you have to think about if you hit a certain card, if you hit a certain amount of spirit guides. It, there's a lot of math involved with figuring out if you can win if you hit certain cards or if you take certain cards out of your deck. And then there are the non-spoils versions, which have like Anticipate and uh, Mystical Teachings, more like Toolbox-centric. The deck is pretty tough to play. Um, you have to know what to play around, what spots you need to win, because there are Counterspell matchups where they could have Remand, they could have Cryptic Command. You have to have to read your opponent, figure out what they're on, and then just go for your one shot. Because if you're wrong, you lose. If you're right, then you win. Uh, on the other side of the country, Michael and I were playing in Grand Prix Charlotte, and, well, for, for one of us, I played the entirety of the tournament. Michael did not. Explain what was going on there. All right, so everybody probably knows by now there was the debacle, or whatever you want to call it, with the tournament software and a huge delay in between round four and five of the tournament. We won't get too much into that because, you know, it was just an objectively bad situation, and I think Star City Games made you know the best they could, and, you know, it was really nobody's fault, to be honest. But it is what it is, and around 5 p.m., we hadn't even started around 5, and, you know, it was my birthday weekend, and I'm kind of in a weird spot with pro points, and a lot of my friends are in town. Charlotte's really close to Atlanta, which is basically where I'm from. So I chose to drop from the event after playing a single round, much to the dismay of one Gerald Thompson. <laughs> did, didn't even get your infinite challenge badge, did you? <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I, uh, I I knew what I wanted to do the rest of my time. Are those things transferable? Like, could you not find like some small child in the venue to give that to or something? I don't know. Maybe I could have, but then I would have also had to wait in line for an hour. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So you played Infect, though? I did. I, I registered Infrek for the tournament. Um, it's something that I have played a couple of times, both in Modern and once in Legacy. Yeah, well, I mean, if you live around Tom Ross, which we do now, kind of just inadvertently end up with some hands-on Infect experience. And, you know, it's, it's a deck I actually like to play. Uh, opponents play very poorly against you because it's very difficult to time your spells correctly against Infect. And you're able to, even necessarily, if you have a bad matchup or your draws aren't that great, you're able to leverage... Very few resources. So th this is a reasonable talking point, because I feel like most people are like, all right, well, you you went to this Grand Prix, you, you paid your entry fee, you got a deck, you know, you, you woke up in on time to play in the tournament. Like, why would you not play in the tournament, right? I think it was Gabe Carlton Barnes who brought up this idea to me of, of EF, 
which is you know kind of kind of like the inverse to EV, which is expected value. EF is expected fun. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It, my my expected fun for the weekend by choosing to drop from the tournament and go with my friends to you know a, a local pub and then go out to a karaoke bar was way higher, I, I assumed, than playing in the rest of the tournament. Yeah, and then you got to. Well, I guess you didn't get to leave like all that early because you had to wait for me, but. Yeah, I mean, I kind of got screwed over, you know, on Sunday trying to ferry everyone home back to Roanoke, Virginia. But, you know, I still got to bird a little bit, and that was fun. Sure. Yeah, you got to tell me how bad I am? No, I mean, you played fine. (laughs) (laughs) Which is exactly what I strive for. Did you at least win your round, Michael? I did win my round. (laughs) (laughs) The 4-0 drop. Classic. (laughs) Right, right. When I told everyone, they just automatically assumed I lost the first round, but no. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So, uh, on the other hand, I played uh, basically 15 rounds of Swiss. I only had two buys because I'm not gold yet like y'all. But uh, I did basically lock that up this weekend. I got my 30th pro point with a 12-3 and finish. Uh, I need the extra three from Pro Tour Sydney. And then I'll be locked for gold. So, barring any, you know, like missed flights or disqualifications somehow or whatever, I should be fine. But I had the Magic Online Championship last weekend and was kind of like strained for testing time because they didn't they didn't tell us like when we had to turn in our deck list until a couple weeks before the event. So, I was pretty nervous about my modern deck. I just ended up playing like the Jeskai Harbinger, Jeskai Nahiri deck, whatever you want to call it. Uh, which was kind of like the first time that deck had seen tournament play. Like there are a bunch of people streaming it, but I didn't really like the the ways that they were building their decks. Like they were building it like a an actual just guy control deck, just like lots of lands, uh, expensive sorceries, like some Sphinx's Revelations and Wrath of Gods and all this nonsense, Cryptic Command. And I just felt like that type of deck was not very well positioned, but I did like Nahiri a lot. So I started building a bunch of different versions uh, of just guy with that card. And eventually settled on something that I thought was pretty good, but it was something that I built in like two days or whatever. So that was kind of scary, but it served me pretty well in the Magic Online Championship. So I just decided to run it back for this GP with very minimal changes. And I did pretty well. I lost to a mirror match. I lost to Scapeshift, which is kind of a horrendous matchup, especially since I didn't have anything special for them. What? I lost to Naya Company because, I don't know, I, I think I sideboarded pretty bad and maybe played pretty bad too, but it was weird because I, I don't think I've played a blue deck in Modern that felt like I had so much control over my matches because like people are coming at you from so many different angles and it is very rare that you have a blue deck that is actually capable of like beating all of those decks, but this one just actually feels really good. Yeah, I really yeah. liked... I really liked your deck. Serum Visions and Ancestral um, definitely is a place that I normally want to be in. Just in life, right? Yeah, pretty much. Were you initially trying only Serum Visions or only Ancestral, or did you just naturally have them both in your deck? I pretty much started with like the list that you saw me play. Like Andrew was with me on Sunday night, the week before the mocks, and we were like playing some leagues and talking about the deck and stuff. And that was mostly where I started, where it's just like, I have built a lot of decks that have similar shells to that before, so it's it's pretty easy for me to like throw stuff together and within like five or ten cards, like I know what will work and what won't work. Yeah, the main deck timely reinforcements too. That was really nice touch. Yeah, I think that's a big difference than from what everyone else is doing because everyone everyone seems to be playing like lightning helix and electrolyze and all these things that are just like kind of like clean one for one removal, but like with an upside. 
And timely reinforcements is not that. You know, it, it sometimes it is. Sometimes it is just like, you know, gain six life, kill your wild Nicodle or whatever. But it, it does so much more just for, for gaining you six life or giving you three blockers for a Tarmogoyf that's like trying to attack your Nahiri or whatever. And if you get to jump block their thing and untap with Nahiri, then you can just shoot down their creature. And the, the three tokens generally gives you like the three turns that you need to ultimate the Nahiri. So timely reinforcements just like adds this dimension to your deck that none of these other decks have and it is so cheap and so effective and you know gives you a main decade card against burn and stuff and i i just i basically can't stress like how good the timely reinforcements are yeah that was definitely a great selection for the tournament going back on charlotte would you would you run it back it's hard for me to to say no to that just because my record was pretty good. I felt like I had the capability of making top eight, but I feel weird about the tournament. Like, I don't know how close to fake this tournament was because of all the weird stuff that happened. And like Michael said, you know, it's, it's not really anyone's fault. It was just like a thing that happened and, you know, we had to deal with it. For me, I needed the pro point and despite being like pretty sick, like I, I just had to like stick in the tournament to try and go 12 and three and I did. So it was, it was worth it, but uh, when I was 3-0, I, I got paired down to a 1-2, and when oh, I was God. 5-0, I played a mirror match, and it was hard fought. You know, we had some really close games, and then at the end of it, I was 6-0, and he was dropping at 2-4. Wow. So, yeah, so, you know, the, the tournament just, it, it didn't seem very real, especially when there were 12 9-0s at the end of day one. And X and 1 went down to, like, 80th place or something. It, it just felt like the randomness in the two rounds of the pairings just, I don't know, I felt I feel like all the people that were X1 or XO, like, beat the people that they got paired down against, which just inflated the tournament with a bunch of actual buys. Yeah, I mean, going forward, I don't know if we can fully accept Charlotte as a, like, modern GP that we can take information from. I mean, like, sure, there was this debacle with, like, the first day or whatever, but by, like, round seven throughout the rest of the tournament, that, that issue was mostly taken care of, right? Yeah, so uh, the, the pairings were random for rounds four and six, and that was it. Oh, okay. But at the same time, having 12 people be 9-0 at the end of day one is just incredibly strange. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly, I mean, problematic's not really the right word, but that's strange. But, I mean, it, you know, it self-corrects over the course of the second day. Well, yes and no, because there there just ended up being, like, a bunch of people at X and 2 that missed the top 8 also. Well, that's, like, a fairly common thing for 2,500-man tournaments, right? Yeah, there were two X and 2s in LA that didn't make it. Right, but there were, like, six in this tournament. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. I mean, it's, it's, it's an outlier for sure. I mean, obviously, like, you know, what happened is, is super strange and probably will never, ever happen again, but... I think going as far to say like the results or you know people's accomplishments or anything along those lines are are kind of should be taken with a grain of salt is a little extreme. Yeah, I mean I'm not trying to diminish anyone's result, but I, I'm just saying like for me personally, it felt like a very easy twelve and three where I lost some matches that uh, in in tournaments where I typically do pretty well are not matches that I would have lost like the mirror match and the the Naya Company one specifically like the Scapeshift guy just like beat the crap out of me like that one was not very close but those two I feel like if I were on my game I would have won them and if I need to if I need to like top eight the tournament like I can't be losing those matches e- even aside from that stuff it just felt like you know a lot of my rounds were like pretty easy and playing against like some weirdo decks and. Just, like, getting paired down against someone who is, like, 1-2 and just, like, off the tournament already is... It, I mean, it is free. It is. It, it does feel like a buy. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely, you know, a bizarre set of circumstances. But, I, I, again, like, I don't think it's very productive to kind of harp on those weird circumstantial feelings towards, you know, your matchups or, you know, the decks that perform well or whatever. 
Sure. Well, the metagames looked kind of different. And again, uh, I'm not going to try and harp on this too much, but I, w- I wonder how much like the two rounds of random pairings actually affected things or if it, if it is just like a coast to coast difference. So on the Wizards website, which I just recently found out, like you can go to sideboard.com and that redirects you to coverage. Like, that used to work a long time ago, and then they stopped it, and now I think it's back, which I think is great. So if you're ever looking for tournament coverage, just go to sideboard.com. So I was talking to Patrick Chapin, who played uh, very close to the Grixis deck that Michael Majors wrote about a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about how great the deck was, and he ended up finishing kind of poorly, basically because he didn't have access to Kozilek's return, and he lost to Master Waves a couple times, and I think Edge Champion once. And I was like, dude, that's really strange because we, like, I didn't see any affinity, any merfolk, like, on our side. And if you look at the different metagame breakdowns in LA, this is, like, the top 100 decks going into day two, if you just look at the standings. And the top deck was Abzan Company, second was Affinity, third was Merfolk. And in Charlotte, Affinity is the biggest deck, even though I didn't see it. But, like, Merfolk is just not on this list. Yeah, I find that a little odd, given that Merfolk actually won LA. Maybe there's some sort of coast bias. Like I said, Modern is is the format where people just kind of have their decks, you know? And maybe on the East Coast, like, people just don't have Merfolk, or they don't like playing Merfolk. I don't know. I mean, it it might be a regional thing, but again, like, we were talking of eight players of a 2,000-man tournament, you know? Anything can happen, right? Well, eight, eight players that are doing well... I mean, I, I would be curious to see the actual day two metagame breakdown, like the full day two, but I know there's like, you know, 600 people in both day twos or something. So that's a little bit too much, but Merfolk winning one tournament, whereas it not even being close to performing well in the other tournament is pretty strange. Certainly the fact that he actually won the tournament with Merfolk kind of makes that that topic of discussion, you know, more pronounced, which is something interesting to, to talk about, but... I think in, in general, like the, the shifts towards like affinity again this week and other decks along those lines, like the the less pronounced uh, dominance of Abzan Company on the the East Coast instead of the West Coast, which has kind of been like everyone kind of considers Abzan Company to be the best deck. Th- those are the kinds of things that are more interesting, even though there is a strange anomaly with like Merfolk. Again, these breakdowns are not like actual representations of like you know the the decks that are getting played, but the decks that are getting played and doing well. So it is kind of strange, too, because, the, like, the top 100, like I said, was mostly 8-1 or better for Charlotte. So th- there could have been just, like, a sea of Abzan Company decks, like, hanging out at 7-2, and two, for example. Other weird things to note are, like, the, the Jeskai Harbinger decks. Uh, there's nine of those in the top 100 going into day two of Charlotte and five going into the top 100 uh, for day two in L.A. But I, I feel like that deck is real. From, from what I've seen online, most people are basically copying Pete Ingram's list instead of my list, which is understandable. You know, like he won a tournament where he had to play a million rounds as opposed to, you know, my tournament where I played five rounds. I kind of get that, but I, I do think that the deck is also like in its infancy and is just going to get better. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I would also like to point out, Jerry, that your your list is more radical, more of a radical shift from the previous blue-white-red decks. So Pete's list is more like the Jeskai of Classic, you know, with Helix and not the full four, the full eight visions. So I, I think people are just more comfortable with playing what they have played, which is closer to Pete's version than your version. Yeah, but I, I think that it's a new deck. It is a new archetype. It is not, you know, like we, we just slap in four Nahiris and an Emrakul into our old Jeskai deck and call it a day, you know, like that, that fundamentally changes what the deck is actually trying to do. 
people really like drawing cryptic command. I, if, if I can learn anything and like Corey Burkhart, you know, top aided uh, GPLA with four cryptic commands in his deck, and you know, people really like playing that in their blue decks. Yeah. Meanwhile, I cut the cryptic command in my deck. I, I thought it was pretty bad. I, I think something interesting to talk about, actually, uh, you, you mentioned it when you're introducing your deck a few minutes ago, is this idea that. Uh, modern control decks aren't able to actually properly control everything, or even the majority of matchups. Uh, it's something that we've seen a lot. Um, Jerry and I have played a lot of Grixis Control over the last, gosh, I guess it's been close to a year now, which is kind of crazy to think about. These control decks like aren't actually able to necessarily stop their opponents from doing what they want to do the majority of the time. And you kind of have to pick and choose your battles and sometimes get very aggressive. And that's Actually, why Nahiri is so good is it allows this quote-unquote control deck to kill its opponent in three turns. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the just the, the Splinter Twin threat. Like, it might not be on the table, but everybody's constantly thinking, like, oh, he could have Splinter Twin, where Nahiri does nearly the same thing, just wins the game on the spot if there's no appropriate answer for it. I mean, N- Nahiri solves a lot of problems. There are, there are matchups like Scapeshift and Tron that used to just be horrendous, and... Well, well, I think those matchups are still bad. Like, Nahiri actually just gives you a shot, which I think is insane. Nahiri is also randomly great against Ad Nauseam, too. You can exile their unlifes, which can normally be life or death in that matchup. I, I think I think the big deal here is that, like, everyone everyone is talking about how Nahiri is this very fast win condition. That's certainly why it's actually in the deck, but that's just, like, the biggest perk of it. The fact that you can just play Nahiri, uh, play a control game, it can enter the battlefield immediately exile a creature or you know it's more versatile than that it can do with some artifacts most of those are, are pretty tough to touch but you know every enchantment uh gives you a relevant piece of position it you know digs digs you into better cards and improves your hand like the fact that nahiri just literally does actually everything is insane yeah i was gonna say i mean it's it's your win condition that kills them quickly but it can also draw cards and kill creatures so what the hell you know like that's <laughs> that's that's the best card of all time right yeah, if, if you just, like, wrote the description of a card and told me those things, I would assume it's not real. Well, I guess there's not much modern coming up now. Grand Prix Minneapolis. Yeah, so standard this weekend, and then I think there are a couple standard opens happening. So we're kind of back to standard, but does this change anything for modern? Like, these these two tournaments? How, how much does Merfolk winning a GP or Ad Nazi winning a GP like actually affect the metagame? I would assume actually very little. I think we're kind of back to this normalcy, actually, where we're like, you know, Affinity is more pronounced, Adding Company is more pronounced. Uh, people are starting to move towards these linear aggressive decks, which is kind of what we expected before Eldrazi kind of came in and screwed everything up at the Pro Tour. You know, we're going to see these Bushwhacker Zoo decks burn, Affinity, Infect, uh, things along those lines. Yes, Nahiri got printed, so like Jeskai Harbinger is a new archetype, but it's not going to work the format. It's just a new archetype. I, I expect most people to just kind of stay in their comfort zone, play their, you know, linear aggressive deck, their linear combo deck, whatever. But uh, I think the, the the Harbinger deck definitely has a high ceiling right now, just because it's so new and there's so many different versions of it. People really haven't found what's the most consistent one. So I would actually be on the lookout to just play that deck and figure out what the best configuration is just to kind of make use of how good Nahiri is in a lot of situations. Yeah, I'm definitely down with that. Modern, I feel like, has been one of my worst formats. It just always feels like I lose a ton in the format. And at the the mocks, they had some of our win percentages. And actually, like, Modern, for at least, like, the account that I play on recently has has been, like, my highest percentage format, oddly enough, but it just always feels like 
I'm kind of lost in modern. I don't know what to play, and I'm very jealous of the people who just like have their one deck and they love it and they get to stick to it and everything. And this Jeskai deck actually feels like something that I could just tune week to week and have it be good against like whatever I think is going to be big. And uh, this could just be like the deck that I keep playing for forever. I mean, in modern, I that's definitely just what it comes down to. There are so many interactions. There's so many different cards that like hopping from deck to deck is just normally a net negative because you can't really master every single interaction. And you certainly just like can't prey on a metagame too because everything is, you know, five or 10% of the field. So pairings are all random and you're likely not going to get paired against the exact stuff that you thought you were. So as far as standard Grand Prix Minneapolis, Andrew, are you going? I am not going. Um, if I didn't get those two points in LA, I was going to book a last minute ticket, but I believe I'm not going now. Well, is it is it more important for you to go now that you have the two points or less important? Uh, I would go with less important now. Well, just because consecutive X3s is, is, is a pretty difficult task. Since I didn't do it in LA, I don't feel like it's worth my time for me to go try and do it within the next three Grand Prix that I'm going to. Fair enough. And Michael, you're obviously not going, right? Obviously. What is that supposed to mean? Well, I, I mean, if, even if you went, you would probably just not play in the tournament, so... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there you got me. I, I just come for the you know the people and the hangs. I have a lot of friends in Minneapolis. I mean, if you want to go just to hang out, I can give you the names of a few people. You'll enjoy <laughs> yourself. No, no, I, I have some plans this weekend, um, so I'll be taking the week off, but I will be... I guess we'll, we'll get to this in the future, but I will be back on the Grand Prix circuit in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Legacy. Yeah, that, that'll be fun to talk about. But this weekend, I have a wedding, so I'm not, not going to Minneapolis, unfortunately. But I am kind of just, like, looking at standard because nothing else is really going on. Like, modern is kind of done for a while, and I kind of just have my deck. So I don't really need to work on that anymore. I, and I recorded a video last night of... Basically, what is a Bant, Cryptolith Rite, like, no combo, normal deck-ish type thing. Like, pretty similar to what Oliver and Magnus played in the Mox, except I had some Avacyn's main deck instead of their Reality Smashers, and it felt pretty good. Yeah, I actually love this deck. I would recommend it to everyone playing in, in GP Minneapolis. Uh, just just the... Even though it's very slight, I believe most lists are actually playing Cape Sequoilus as a functional dual land, just colorless slash you know, white land. Just the fact that your mana is a little bit better, you're able to play on curve more frequently. And, and really the strengths of the, the four-color rights deck is just being able to play with Displacer. And it, sure, it's nice that you can just turtle up and combo kill your opponent eventually, but any game where you're kind of just doing your thing, you have a huge board position, you know, Cryptolith Rites plus Displacer and Reflector Mage or Deswatch Recruiter, you're going to eventually kill your opponent. And I actually like the idea of, of playing Addison because it's just another super powerful thing with Displacer. Yeah, that was that was basically what I thought when I saw the deck. It was just a deck that five out of league online, and through through playing the games, it was it was very clear to me that it's just like okay, uh, I'm definitely gonna play a creature on turn three, and I only have one displacer, so it's not gonna be that one because this is like by far my most important thing, and I need to protect this or at least like wait to play it until I can get a use out of it, you know. Yeah, sometimes I just went off, like, with Cryptolith Rite and just all the creatures, and there was at no point where I was like, man, I wish I had a Brood Monitor. Yeah, Brood Monitor is a little, can be a little clunky in those draws sometimes, but someone who, like, worked on the Cryptolith Rite deck and, like, the sideboard and how the current version looks right now, it, it can actually be pretty good in just random, like, mid-range matchups. Like, I know that some of... Like the green white deck, when you play the Brood Monitor, you can prevent them from like getting in with their Sylvan Advocates, which 
is normally one of the tougher cards to deal with, and just buying time for you to company into your combo is normally what you need. Yeah, but do you actually need to combo them? Like, aren't, aren't your good draws just where you have Displacer Reflector Mage and, you know, you have, like, like Michael was saying, just either Duskwatch Recruiter or, like, something with Cryptolith right, and you're just kind of, like, going off and doing a bunch of stuff? Well, you always have to keep in mind the, the, the constant threat of an Avacyn flip, which can, which can just completely destroy your board. And if you're not, like, actually putting a clock on them with the, well, the inevitability clock of the infinite combo, then they can just rip the Avacyn and play Hanger back, and then you're completely ruined. Unless you have Displacer. Like, as, as long as you keep a Displacer in play, it just doesn't really matter. I guess that's true. Yeah, I, I know that... Um... I, I was this a couple weeks now, but at uh, GP New York, I lost to uh, the four color rights deck in the in the top eight of the tournament, and I, I did actually lose to the you know infinite combo technically, but I basically just got worked by Displacer Reflector Mage and was kind of just like hard locked for seven turns. Yeah, I mean the combo is just a clean way to to win the game, but I don't think it really helps you that much, and I don't think it makes up for the fact that you have to play an extra color, which you know. The, the black cards are not bad. Catacomb Sifter is obviously very good, and I think the sideboard cards are pretty nice too, but I don't think that they're entirely necessary. And then the Zulaport Cutthroat and the Broodmonitor are just not very good in the deck. Certainly the, the deck has been constructed in a way to try to minimize Zulaport Cutthroat, I think. Uh, most people, there were only two copies in the deck, and most folks have adopted just playing one and then sideboarding in a second copy. The intention is just to assemble the Displacer Catacomb Sifter Brood Monitor combo, and then you can infinite scry into your single Zulaport Cutthroat and actually kill your opponent, which is a, a pretty clean solution to the issue of you know, playing a bunch of bad cards in your deck. But once you've assembled you know, this monstrous machine of all these moving parts, you can probably just find a way to nickel and dime your opponent to that. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. So, uh, Majors, I guess we're on the same page for Standard. This deck sounds great. Yeah, I mean, it's it, that's basically everything that I want to do in a deck. Displacer, uh, you know, this goes back to way back in week one. Uh, Jerry and I played uh, alongside pretty much the entire Roanoke contingent, uh, the black-white Eldrazi deck. And the reason we chose to play that deck is because displacer Absin is such a absolutely ridiculous combo. And uh, way back in week one, that was basically nobody was prepared for that. And, you know, things are way different now, to be fair, but... Just having access to these extremely powerful cards, uh, Cryptolith Rites, Displacer, Dustwatch Recruiter, Reflector Mage, Sylvan Advocate, uh, you know, Jerry's talking about playing Archangel Avacyn, or even just Reality Smasher. Those cards are, are awesome, pound for pound, and uh, on top of all the synergy they have with uh, each other. So. I am pretty interested in the black-white control decks, the Planeswalker-heavy version that uh, Seth had. Um, are you guys concerned at all with that matchup uh, with your current deck? I think that's the one that I am concerned about. That's the one where I have, like, nine or ten cards on my sideboard, and I don't know, it's just, like, negates and smashers and stuff like that, and obviously it's still close, if not, like, you still being a dog. But, yeah, it is definitely the one matchup where I think that you actually have to devote a bunch of cards to. Yeah, my favorite thing about Seth's deck was that he was just able to turn the game so fast with secure Gideon and just mash your opponent after you you know, try and mitigate the board with Obnixil Senior Removal Spells. I Definitely a very sweet deck that he made at 2 a.m. or something. Oh, really? I didn't even know that. Yeah, he made it the night before the tournament because he didn't want to play four-color rights. It, I guess it worked out for him. Uh, Seth is Seth is great. I'm, I'm not so sure if I'm concerned with that matchup. I'm definitely concerned with my Seth Fanfield matchup. Well, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> that, that actually might be just the reason to play Reality Smasher, even though Avacyn seems awesome and is definitely has a lot of synergy with Displacer. Maybe you just need something that's just raw power 
something that can come down, snipe a planeswalker, put a lot of pressure on your opponent if they cast, you know, Languish or some other kind of sweeper effect. Yeah, that's entirely possible. I mean, I did play a lot of matchups, and granted, this was only one league, but I did play a lot of matchups where uh, I just ended up making a pretty clean swap of Avacyn for the Smashers. Did you find Avacyn was ever tough to cast? Sort of, not really. I mean, like, when you have Lone Dryad and Cryptolith, right, just, like, a lot of your cards are pretty easy to cast unless they're, they're colorless. But that seems like a, a kind of like best case scenario. You already have those uh, one of those two cards in play with like another creature, or you've you have Cryptolith and a creature, or you have Lone Dryad and another creature. Yeah, but Avacyn is generally not very good unless you have creatures anyway. No, that's and fair. This this wasn't game one, you know, so like people don't necessarily have all their sweepers in their deck yet and stuff. So so the next standard tournament after Minneapolis is an open, right? Uh, yes, there are opens good. in Atlanta, and that's the weekend of GP Costa Rica. And mm-hmm. then the weekend after is an open in Orlando, which is a little far for me. So you would just stick with your Cryptolithrite deck if you were to play it next weekend? If I were playing in Minneapolis? Yeah. Yeah, I would. It's it's just the thing that is showing the most promise right now. And I'm looking at Seth's deck list right now, and it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not super happy about some of these numbers. Like, I definitely like what his deck is doing, but it seems like a little clunky and not enough lands and stuff. But this is definitely a deck that I would enjoy playing. If you, tu- you can tune this deck to however, whatever numbers you like, and generally you can, you know, predict the metagame and then make your deck accordingly. I think the two hallowed moonlight is a little maniacal, but you know he's Seth, so he can. Oh, just... I, I I love the moonlights, man. I think it's great. Yeah, I, I was yeah. actually going to ask you guys. I think like that was just a great call. And do you think that that is something that these kinds of white control decks should just be playing? Maybe even more numbers looking forward. Uh, more is a little ambitious. I've definitely played against some decks online that are you know like red white goggles, for example, where they just have a bunch of moonlights made, and it seems very good to me. Just because like maybe maybe the people playing company are trained to play around that card post board, but it's very rare that you actually get hit with it main deck. I mean, like this is not the best logic, I admit, but. If you're just playing more copies and you just fire them off, right? Like, you can just have more velocity spells in your deck that instantly can blow out your opponent. That is true. But then it's like, if you have to cycle the first one on turn two, it is very unlikely that you actually get them, right? It's more unlikely, but it makes your opponent play a certain way, which, you know, you also have the ability to leverage. Yeah, I mean, that is definitely true. I think it's it's definitely, like, a Seth touch, but ended up being totally awesome for him, and probably is just something that a lot of people are going to adopt moving forward. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So you being trained to not play around this card in game one, I think this is something that maybe you actually want to start doing. I agree. Get behind that. Because it, it's, it's basically free, you know? It's just like, oh, this guy th- this guy doesn't have it main deck. Like, why would he, right? Like, that's kind of your argument for doing it. But no, like, it is it is basically just correct to try and play around things if, even if you, you know, can, even if it's not likely. Yeah, the deck really isn't doing anything on turn two anyways, besides transgress or a removal spell. So, I mean, it being instant speed does really save a lot of its worth. I think something to touch on here is that, like, when Jerry says playing around it, he might not even necessarily mean, like, never playing your collected company or whatever. You can just, like, cast your company at a weird time to try to, you know, sink your opponent's mana. Like, even if they get you and they draw a card and that sucks or whatever, if you can, like, you know, untap on a key turn and reality smash them or something along those lines or make it so they can't play a planeswalker in their turn. You can find ways and make it worthwhile. Yep, definitely agree with that. And I don't know. I I do think that this is probably, like, the best black control deck. I feel like what Andrew is saying is correct. Like, Secure Gideon closes the game really quickly. Uh, You do get a nice pickup in Hollow Moonlight. You have the best creature land in Shambling Vents. 
Uh, people are still playing red green decks. You still have like secure Westvale Abbey, and then you just have the good black shelves, just like Languish, Read the Bones, Transgress, and Spot Removal. Uh, unfortunately, we can't all be Seth Manfield, you know, but we can try. I'm sure most people that play Magic very competitively feel that way, but uh, other than um, someone mentioned it briefly, I think the, the land count's a little low, but that's really my only issue with the deck list. I think it looks really good. I also really like his like number of Kalidus in the sideboard and just being able to bring in Thought Not Seer, Kalidus, and his Displacer and Bearer of Silence is a... It's another touch where he can surprise his opponent out of the board. Even this this week, we aren't playing standard. Uh, none of us are. If you know people start to adapt this black white control deck, or maybe move towards this band, no combo Eldrazi deck, or you know four color rights, whatever you want to call it, uh, where do you think we will find ourselves a week from now? Maybe red green goggles ramp. I don't know. I could see it. mono white humans making a resurgence. Get under people. Yep, just try and get under them. Maybe with. Uh, the new Bant Reality Smasher main deck, then Languish gets a lot gets a lot worse, which makes the White Weenie deck much better. Yeah, I mean, my, my first standard event is going to be in a couple weeks, and standard, unlike Modern, like, actually has churned to it, you know, like, the decks change, whereas Modern most, mostly stays the same, you know, like, sometimes a deck gets a little bit more popular or a little bit less popular or whatever, but if, if standard looks completely different in two weeks, I would not be completely surprised. Nope, I'm I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree. It's uh, you know even just since the Pro Tour, there haven't actually been that many official standard tournaments. I think just two Grand Prix and not even a SU Tour stop. No, it's just all modern. So just two Grand Prix and you know things are completely different now. Yep, yep. stuff's pretty up in the air right now. So I don't know. I would definitely either play this Orzhov Control deck or the uh, the Bant No Combo deck. Alright, so I think that is going to do it, although we do have a little fun thing here for the end. Uh, this is the game podcast, after all, and I, I don't really like games, but this one was pretty fun. Uh, Majors and I kind of invented this on the way back from a trip once. We were riding with Todd Anderson, and it was just like, hey, you know, we, we need to get to know each other a little bit better. And I think this game is, is best played with three people where, say, for example, it is me, Andrew, and Michael... I will ask Michael a question about Andrew. Michael will try to guess what the answer is for Andrew, and then Andrew will expand on that. I'm ready. Ready? All right, Major. Who's going first? I, I don't know. I'm kind of nervous. I want you to start it off. Okay. Okay. So this this is kind of a, a softball because I'm also pretty bad at coming up with these questions. So, Michael, when Andrew made top eight of PT Oath, do you think he was more excited to top eight the PT for himself, or was he more excited when JC, his friend and teammate, won the Pro Tour? Now, now I admit this is a little bit of cheating, because I think I might have gotten some insider information on this somewhere along the lines, but... Oh, that's a tilt. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to go with... I mean, Andrew, Andrew's just a really good guy, so I'm sure you know he's going to feel the weight of the accomplishment of, of his friend and teammate winning the Pro Tour. So I'm going to say he felt better about JC winning the Pro Tour. Andrew? That's absolutely correct. Uh, <laughs> um, when we both did it, I was pretty off. Even if we lost, I was pretty much off it. But if we won, then like it just meant so much more to me. No matter who won, I would just be super happy about it because you know we made our own stupid deck and it did it. Yeah, and that's why we're friends. Is because you feel that way. So, like I said, it's a softball. But all right, Michael, hit me. Okay. As you can probably tell, because you have eyes that work, Andrew has really great hair. Truth. Do you think there would ever be a scenario where Andrew Brown would shave his head? Hmm, that's that's good. Uh, 
So, for we were trying to come up with the name for the podcast. Andrew suggested the Best Hair in Magic podcast. <laughs> so, I'm going to go with, like, yes, there is a reason, but it would have to be a good one. Like, you know, maybe he donates his hair or something. But just to do it for, like, a stylistic thing, I don't think he would. Jerry, you're actually wrong. I would, I would never shave my head. Even, if it, <laughs> yeah. even for charity. That is messed up, man. That's awesome. It's so nice. Why would I do it to that? Because it'll grow back. <laughs> uh, but there's, there's like a lot of downtime. I'd rather just give them my money instead of giving them my hair. Jeez. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Okay. Okay. Maybe we can't be friends. Who knows? <laughs> See, and this is why the game is great. Well, I guess there's some sort of cost attached to it, you know, like how much of my hair growing is worth to me per dollar. So once I come up with that number, I can accurately give the charity that much money instead of my hair. So if the line was like, if it takes three months for me to grow my hairstyle of choice, I would probably give them $100 per month. So I just give them 300 bucks. You think that's reasonable? That No, no, it's not. Because I, I feel like since you are not willing to shave your head, it is worth more than three hundred dollars to you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, might, I might be lowballing it. Oh, I think you are. I think I think you're uh, trying to not shave your head and and also just not give those charities very much money at all. It, it sounds like I'd have to pay you like five hundred dollars to shave your head or something like that. Ooh, Michael, Michael, are we gonna have to do this? Things can happen. Everybody's got a number, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, we might have to go half season on trying to get Andrew to shave his head. See what the line is. I, I might be down. I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> what, man? You said it was only worth 300 bucks, so... That was a very snap kind of judgment, but, <laughs> you know, the more I think about it, 500 might not be enough. Wow. Yeah, the game is not about snap judgments, man. It's about getting to the truth. Man, you're, you're making me take a hard line with myself right now. It's, it's... That's that's all right. I don't think we have enough time to actually figure this out for sure, so we'll we'll just call it at that and leave it on an interesting note, I think. Sounds good. <laughs> All right, so this is this is going to try and be a weekly thing, uh, you know, assuming that Michael and Andrew and I actually decide to do something as opposed to doing nothing. Said I'm a big fan of doing something. Yeah, I'm, I like the idea of doing something, but actually going through with it is, is tougher than I would expect. But if you're looking to find us in the meantime, we are mostly all on Twitter. I've been there for a while, at G3RRYT. Michael and Andrew, you know, they're getting into it. Uh, what are your guys' Twitter handles? I am at Merc underscore Lurker in honor of uh, Jorabai Merc Lurker, my favorite creature. Of course. Okay. Uh, mine is at Michael J. Majors, a more, more normal approach. Formulaic. And boys, boys, you got to start using the Twitters just a little bit more. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get into it. I'm, I'm doing a little bit better. Okay. I'm glad. I'm excited. I, I want to see what happens. But, uh... Michael and I write for StarCityGames.com, have multiple pieces of content every week, and that is basically just not going to stop anytime soon. Andrew Brown is uh, busy working a real big boy job, but I I heard that your game just came out, buddy. I just downloaded it on my phone. Sick. Yeah, I was a designer on Skylanders Battlecast. It's a mobile TCG for your phone, your tablet, your iOS, or your Kindle Fire, if you're frisky. You know, it's an aged-down product. It's normally for ages uh, 7 to 15, but if you get deep enough, the strategy is there, and it can be a nice break from magic if you're getting a little burnt out. So you should download it. Okay, well, where else can people find you? 
Twitter is probably the best place to get at me, at Merklurker. And, you know, just send me a Facebook request. I'll probably say yes. Okay. And when are you going to start writing articles? Probably when I have one more good result. I don't really feel like I have it completely down yet, you know? People still don't recognize me. That, dude, that's why you need to start writing and, and be more active on Twitter. It's not about the results, man. The results thing is funny because it's like they, they remember the people who did well last weekend. Not like the guy that had like, you know, two finishes this year or whatever. It's just not how it works. So you got to write every week and then they see your face every week. Sorry, man. I'm, I'm just green to the green to the pro magic scene. Uh, we'll get you set up. Don't worry. All right. All right, guys. Uh, how do you think we did? Was this fun? Should we do some more? I said, and we're going to do better. Okay, we'll try. We'll try. No promises. But yeah, I guess we'll see everyone next week. And that's game.